Good evening. Welcome to the Critical Hour. We're coming to you from the capital of the United States of America, Washington, D.C., here on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, political scientist, author, and nationally syndicated columnist, Dr. Wilmer Leon, and I'm joined here by my co-host, political analyst, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. For the next two hours, we will explore and analyze the salient news stories that are impacting the global village in which we live. Chinese troops to join Russian military drills as tensions with U.S. grow. The People's Liberation Army, the PLA, will send troops to take part in a Russia-led military exercise in a show of closer ties and military strength amid rising tensions with the U.S. For insight into this, let's start the show the way we usually do each Friday. Our first guest is a widely acclaimed speaker, writer, journalist, and political analyst. He's traveled extensively in the Middle East and in Latin America. His latest book is entitled Kamala Harris and the Future of America, an essay in three parts. Caleb Moppin, as always, Caleb, welcome back. Sure. Glad to be here, as always. So the Vostok 2022 strategic exercise is to be held from August 30th to September 5th, and it comes at a very sensitive time. Both nations face backlash from the U.S. and uh, the U.S.'s allies over their military activity, Uh, You've got, of course, Beijing's issue or the U.S.'s issue with Taiwan, and you've got Russia's intervention in Ukraine. Caleb, the folks at the Pentagon can't be looking at this and applauding. No, they certainly cannot. And you'll recall one of Donald Trump's first interviews when he was running for president. He sat down with Bill O'Reilly, and in that interview he said, I've heard all my life, you can't have Russia and China together. You can't push Russia and China together. And that's what Barack Obama has done. It seems like Donald Trump, in his four years of presidency, he was not able to uh, to undo that. And it seems like Biden is exacerbating the situation between Ukraine and Taiwan. And it seems like, yes, the military and economic alliance between Russia and China is getting stronger. The two countries are very different culturally. Uh, they have very different histories, et cetera, but they're both under attack by Wall Street imperialism. They're both seen as competitors on the global market and, and a force of opposition to the monopolists who dominate the U.S. economy. And so they've both been targeted, and now they are getting closer together. I could look at it also and, and see a similarity in their histories in that they're both large countries. They both have very distinct cultures that they want to be respected. They have ways of doing things, whether it's political or social, et cetera, that they want to be respected. And they have been attacked by the same colonial forces, the same capital forces that are attacking them now. So what do you think about the, the similarity there? Well, at the beginning of the 20th century, they were both, both deeply, deeply poor countries. Uh, and then it was because of socialist revolution that they both raised themselves up from poverty uh, and industrialized very rapidly, uh, you know, built up power plants and steel industries and raised millions of people up. And now that they are competitors, they're not impoverished captive markets, they're competitors, uh, they have been targeted, uh, and that has been the situation. Whether you look at the, the 15 countries that invaded Russia after the Russian Revolution to the Second World War, where 26 million people died from the Nazi invasion. You can talk about China, uh, the Korean War right on their border, uh, the Tibet Civil War, where the USA was arming Tibetan separatists uh, and extremists and airdropping them into Tibet You know, for, for a period of five or six years. You had this ongoing civil war in Tibet. 
Uh, you can talk about all the efforts to break apart China. These two countries have faced relentless attack uh, as they've pulled themselves up economically and made themselves into, into real superpowers on the global stage. And uh, I think that is certainly a, a point of similarity, despite the differences. So this is going to be the second large drill that the two countries have joined in together. I think the first one was in May. They also engaged in one last year. And Joe Biden, when he was in the region in May, he made the very bellicose statement about how the United States was going to back Taiwan. You now have, you know, you've had Nancy Pelosi come and go. You've had the second entourage from the U.S. Congress come and go. All seems to be for naught. Doesn't appear as though anybody's quaking in their boots anymore when the United States makes uh, threats and statements about what it's going to back and what it's going to do. Nobody seems to be backing off the corner <laughs> when <laughs> when the bully shows up. Indeed. Um, I mean, they have been calling the bluff of the United States and continuing to do so. Uh, there are seem to be forces in the United States that are determined to escalate and push things to the brink as much as they possibly can. And so... There are forces in Russia and China that have said, okay, if you're going to play it that way, we'll play it that way as well. And uh, that seems to be their response. So there, there you go. Here's uh, something interesting. There's a lot going on as far as the new world order. China backs African Union bid to join the group of 20. I also recently saw an article where China forgave a lot of debt from a number of African countries. It seems to me that there's been discussion that, you know, as a result of Ukraine and the U.S. sanctions, that a lot of the global South countries are really going to suffer. But I also see moves by China and Russia that seems that they want to kind of mitigate that. You Caleb. Sure. Well, I, it seems like Russia and China have really worked with developing countries around building up national industries. You have Gazprom and Rosneft, the state-run oil and gas companies in Russia that have had partnerships with many African countries. Uh, you have uh, you know China's uh, mineral industries and, and other manufacturers that have teamed up. And it seems like there is an effort with the Eurasian Economic Union and the Belt and Road Initiative to, you know, kind of find the domestic industries of developing countries, build them up, help them with infrastructure. That's a big part of the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank. Help these countries become more economically prosperous in that way. Um, and then at the same time, solidify trade relations between the private sectors of, of Russia and China. Um, so that seems to be the overall strategy. It plays out in different ways in different countries, obviously. Uh, but that seems to be their strategy. It's very different than the free trade policies that we've seen pushed by the World Bank and pushed by the International Monetary Fund, where they basically want countries to just completely open themselves up for business, uh, have their domestic industries put out of business. You know, Mexico has been growing its own food for thousands of years, long before Christopher Columbus ever showed up. But then Bill Clinton came in with NAFTA and agribusiness from the United States put all the Mexican farmers out of business. A very similar thing happened in Haiti. Uh, and you can see that kind of pattern where these, you know, these free trade policies lead to domestic industries in impoverished countries being eliminated. Uh, and you see Russia and China, their trade policies kind of do the opposite. These countries now are kind of focusing on the realities versus the rhetoric. Because you've got Tony Blinken on this Africa tour after Lavrov left and Blinken saying, oh, this had nothing to do with Lavrov's visit. So he's saying, hey, we're here for freedom. We're here for sovereignty. We're here 
oh, but Gregory Meeks wants to pass legislation that sanctions African countries that don't go along with the United States program. And so you've got Blinken offering rhetoric while you have Wang Yi, the Chinese foreign minister, articulating China's interest in in having the African Union join the, the G20. That's substantive policy. Then you've got Indonesian President Joko Widodo saying that he's going to invite the Africa bloc to the G20. That's substantive policy versus rhetoric. So it seems as though these countries now are saying, you know what? We're going with the policy. We're not buying for the I'll gladly pay you the wimpy policy strategy. I'll gladly pay you Tuesday for a hamburger today. Sure. And that, you know, empowering the African Union, uh, that is something that ultimately will benefit Russia and China because the African Union has many countries in it. I mean, Africa is a very large continent. Uh, and at, at that point, you know, it would give them more leverage in these global trade discussions. Uh, it, it's something where, you know, on the African continent, there are many different governments that have many different alliances, et cetera. But the role played by Russia and China in Africa has been a good one. Um, And with the African Union having a seat at the table, it could only be to their benefit in these discussions. It would be a buffer against the United States. And the African Union may not always go in the same direction, you know, that, that, that China and Russia would like things to go. But at the same time, it would be, it would, it would be something that would more likely than not swing things more in their favor than they already are. Garland, I left one thing out, and that was... Over the last 18 months to two years, there have been six to eight coups in African countries, most of them backed by AFRICOM. Right. I forgot about that. Yeah, that could have an effect on people's attitude. Well, you know, recently, I don't know if you're familiar with it, recently President Putin gave a speech in which he basically came out and said, we oppose globalism and that's what our fight is about. There were people from the African Union. There were people from a lot of global South countries. And if you kind of, you know, melt that speech down, he was pretty much saying the U.S. empire is trying to control everything in the world. They're using coercion and they're stealing your resources. And basically, our fight is your fight. That's what I read. Are you familiar with the speech? Your thoughts on all of that, Caleb? Sure. And I mean, President Putin has been speaking very clearly lately, and he's given a lot of very important remarks like this about economics. And he's essentially getting to the the reality of the situation being that the United States has just not economically benefited the countries that it's trading with. When he talks about globalism, now, that's interesting because it's like, you know, the way I understand it, we're talking about imperialism, the highest stage of capitalism. We're talking about the dominance of big banks and corporations in Western countries, keeping the world poor so that they can stay rich. Uh, but the way that uh, the way that people on the right wing, uh, you know, might see it and some of the dissident right wing, they see it as a struggle of nations versus the struggle of inter- against internationalism or globalism. And that, you know, Putin is is making the point in a way that different kinds of political forces around the world, perhaps like people like Modi in India that are more conservative and nationalistic with their Hindu nationalism, they could relate to it. I mean, he's He's making the same overall point that a lot of leftists would make, the same overall point that a lot of conservatives would make, but he's making it in kind of a delicate way because he's kind of walking a tightrope. This isn't the Cold War. Uh, he's not railing against Western capitalism and imperialism. He's not fighting for Marxism-Leninism. That's not the situation. So he's kind of making the point that many countries have just realized they don't benefit uh, from the free trade policies of the United States and that Russia and China have more of an interest in maintaining countries' economic sovereignty. 
And that's also finding its way into the global south as well. As we just talked about China and Russia entering into military exercises, I think, what is it, Russia, Iran, and Venezuela are going to be engaging in some joint military exercises. And not only that, but on the political side, we've seen an incredible overturn of U.S.-backed governments in the global south and what is also a rejection of neoliberalism. Indeed. And, uh, you know, Latin America continues to become more and more independent each day. And uh, the military threats, uh, from the United States are now being countered by joint military exercises. Uh, and we're seeing a, a global pole of resistance emerging, multipolarity, uh, a buzzword that many of us have talked about for a long time, is becoming a reality. And the United States is, you know, escalating things and, and making threats, et cetera. But, you know, the global stage is shifting in one direction, and there's not much they can really do about it. Interesting article. Details on new nuclear deal approved by Iran. And here's what's interesting about this Iran situation in that the EU is saying we want this to happen bad. The Iranians are saying we will do it, but we are a proud people and we will only do it if it benefits us. And the Americans are kind of still trying to play the, well, we're in control and everybody has to do and you will take the deal that we give you, Roll. Your thoughts on the Iran nuclear deal? Well, I mean, this, this article, it, it has some insights about what might be coming ahead. Uh, and, I mean, if you look at it, the Trump administration was very much in with Netanyahu and the hard pro-Israeli right wing. They were really opposed to the Iran nuclear deal. They were really opposed to any de-escalation with Iran, any improvement of relations between the United States and Iran. Uh, and it seemed like, like that was very much what Trump was trying to do. He was trying to prevent the Iran nuclear deal from ever being restored. Not only did he pull the USA out of it, but he was, he was basically trying to pull it out and then kill Qasem Soleimani and then do other, impose new sanctions and, and declare the Islamic Revolutionary Guards terrorists and, and do everything he could to make sure that there was no way the USA could get back into the deal. Europe really wanted this deal. The, the European Union countries were really, really in favor of the Iran nuclear deal. Um, and it appears they are doing everything they can to try and preserve it. Um, and I think it has a lot to do with natural gas in Iran because, you know, Russia is a major source of natural gas. But Iran, their natural gas markets are really expanding. And, you know, if, if things with Russia have gone sour, which they certainly have for most of the European Union countries, Iran could be a new source of natural gas. Um, there's also, I think, a feeling on the part of the more Brzezinski school foreign policy strategists in the Biden administration that the focus should be on Russia and China. And then they see smaller countries around the world that are aligned with Russia and China uh, as, as what they might call satellite countries. That's like Cold War language. And anything they can do to pull those countries further away from Russia and China should be done. So that means improving relations with Venezuela, improving relations with Iran, improving relations with Cuba. It's worth it because that will ultimately weaken, uh, weaken uh, the, the two major superpowers that the United States is contending with, Russia and China. Whereas if you look at the Trump administration, they were in with certain foreign policy interest groups, you know, the Netanyahu, Likud folks in Israel, uh, the Miami Cubans. Uh, you know, who are really into fighting Venezuela, fighting Cuba, et cetera, the Pahlavi uh, folks, the Shahs of Sunset Park, the wealthy Iranian exile community. Trump was pandering to these special foreign policy interest groups that have short-term foreign policy goals related to smaller 
smaller countries that are aligned with Russia and China. Whereas the Biden administration, they're thinking about, you know, the, the, the whole, you know, big deal, the whole, you know, grand chessboard or whatever. And they're thinking about going after Russia and China and trying to pull as many of their friends away in the process as they can. So now it seems that the ball is in the United States court. And be, if Washington agrees to the deal, it will be implemented in stages. And also, the deal calls for a 60-day window where Iran will test the legitimacy and also that the U.S. will cancel three executive orders from Trump. Uh, we've got one minute. Your thoughts, now the ball's in the U.S. court. What's the U.S. going to do with the ball? Well, look, I guess I'll just say that the fact that Iran is even considering this is uh, shocking to me uh, after mm-hmm. what has happened to them since signing the Iran nuclear deal. And it really indicates that within the Iranian government apparatus, there's probably a very, very big chunk of people that really, really want this nuclear deal. Because the fact there's any talk of restoring it right now after everything that's happened to Iran is pretty shocking to me. Yeah, I, I would add this. I think it's kind of like when Russia sent its list of demands in December. They pretty much later on said, we knew they weren't going to take them. but we." And I think that's what Iran's saying. We know these people are not going to give us a fair deal, but we're going to do the gentlemanly thing of saying, here's a deal that's fair to everybody. And the world can look at it and say, hey, come on, the guys gave you an honest deal. Well, I'll give you one more. They're going to be not the gentlemen's in the room. They're going to be the adults in the room. And they're going to be able then to look and say, I told you what I was going to do if you didn't do what I told you to do. And now I'm going to thump your behind. Uh, Caleb Moppin, Thank you, as always, sir. My dad just came out of me. Uh, Caleb Moppin, as always, man. Thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Enjoy the weekend. Absolutely. All right. The same to you. Thank you. All right. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Jobless claims edge lower as Fed looks to cool labor market. Initial filings for unemployment benefits declined slightly last week, though they were consistent with a drift higher in layoffs that began in the spring. This is according to yesterday's Department of Labor report. For insight into this and to other issues, we turn to our next guest. He holds a PhD in political economy, teaches economics at St. Mary's College in California, and he's the author of a number of books, including The Scourge of Neoliberalism, U.S. Economic Policy from Reagan to Trump. Dr. Jack Rasmus, as always, Jack, welcome back. My pleasure. So jobless claims totaled 250,000 for the week ending August 13th, down 2,000 from the previous week and below the 260,000 from the Dow Jones estimate. The four-week moving average for claims, which helps to smooth out the volatility, also fell 
by 2,750 to 246,750. Your thoughts as we talk about with you just about each week on these jobless numbers, Dr. Jack, what, if anything, does this tell you? Well, you know, the jobless numbers uh, should be taken with a grain of salt now. Ever since uh, last year, uh, they eliminated the uh, opportunity for 10 million uh, American workers to even apply for jobless benefits. Uh, you know, it used to be during uh, the worst of the COVID uh, that, um, you know, freelancers, gig workers, uh, um, independent uh, contract workers and so forth uh, were eligible. That was a, uh, an extra subsidy. They, they allowed them for a short period of time uh, to, uh, you know, participate in the unemployment insurance program. But then, uh, uh, you know, Biden uh, cut that out. And uh, overnight, you know, you eliminated 10 million people uh, who tend to be more volatile in terms of unemployment, even filing for unemployment benefits. Uh, plus, you know, you, you the unemployment benefits don't pick up the fact of what's uh, really, I think, the fundamental uh, development going on in the labor market, and that is uh, workers are being uh, uh, reduced from full-time jobs to part-time jobs. Uh, it doesn't pick up the fact that, uh, you know, you used to work 40 hours a week and now you're working 25 hours a week, right? Uh, you can't uh, apply for unemployment benefits for uh, the half a job that you lost, you see. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, that that uh, you know, eight hundred thousand new part-time jobs were create quote created here last month alone. Uh, uh, nearly a hundred thousand uh, workers uh, added uh, second and third part-time jobs. So the massive increase in jobs uh, last month was was mostly part-timers. And when you have that big of an increase in part-time jobs and shift from full-time to part-time. Uh, what what that signals is that uh, businesses are getting ready for layoffs. You know, the first they reduce people um, from part time from full time to part time to to see whether whether they can get away with not uh, laying people off. Uh, and then, of course, when the recession hits uh, more deeply, then they turn to laying those part timers off. And a lot of the part-timers are temps, you see. There's an overlap between temps and part-timers, so they're easy to lay off. I, I think that's uh, what's going on in my recent analysis uh, on, on the jobs report. I really um, pointed that fact out uh, that according to the second Labor Department survey, the household survey, not the one that gives you the 528,000 jobs from the large employers, but the smaller business, medium-sized business, you know, we got a massive increase of part-time job creation. At the same time, a lot more people work in second and third part-time jobs. And, and the government stats don't distinguish between whether you added a second or third job, a job's a job, you see. Uh, that's the fundamental development going on in the labor market. And far more important than whether you look at uh, unemployment claims, 
uh, and uh, you know, unemployment claim system that cuts out 10 million people. Regarding the the Fed is increasing rates now and saying that they're going to increase rates again, I understand that there is some lag on that. We're starting to see some effects in the building industry, but there are people who feel that there will be dramatic effects in the home building industry and home sales and the value of uh, non-commercial real estate. How bad do you think we're looking at it getting? How soon? Well, you know, economists pretty much agree that uh, a monetary policy interest rate uh, has a six to nine month lag. You know, and we started, uh, uh, we, the Fed started raising rates back in uh, March, April, right? And now it's accelerating that. So we're just beginning to see the impact of that on the economy, and it's already showing up. The housing, uh, housing starts, uh, you know, construction industry, uh, you know, dropping dramatically. New housing starts, and we're beginning to see, uh, uh, you know, a contraction in prices uh, in certain markets in in housing as a as a result of that. Um, we're also beginning to see manufacturing uh, soften significantly in certain regions of the country, according to Fed's Beige Book, right? Uh, and uh, those two industries, housing, construction, commercial construction, as well as residential, uh, plus uh, manufacturing, uh, tend to be very sensitive to interest rate hikes. Uh, and um, we're beginning to see that reflection uh, occurring after four or five months uh, in those markets uh, in the industry. So we're going to see by the end of year, I've been predicting, a much steeper uh, contraction in, in housing, uh, construction, uh, and manufacturing even before the end of the year. And it will start showing up uh, you know, in your unemployment claims and layoffs and so forth. Uh, you know, the Biden administration and mainstream economists are claiming, well, consumer spending's really holding up. Retail sales are doing great, you know, 6 7%, right? Uh, yeah, but they don't tell you that uh, retail sales and a lot of c consumer spending is not adjusted for inflation. So if you've got eight nine percent inflation and you got retail sales going up six seven percent, well, it's all price increases, right? It's not real growth. Uh, people don't know that. You know, there's a lot of details about these statistics that the average uh, public uh, does not really uh, uh, understand. Uh, but uh, I've been predicting, uh, you know, we're going to have a, an obvious recession. We already have a technical recession, GDP declining first first half of the year. And I've been uh, predicting since late last year that this year would be a definite recession. And uh, I think it, uh, those numbers are only going to get worse as the Fed continues to raise uh, rates, which it will do because the only solution that this administration has decided on months ago to contain inflation is to have the Fed rapidly jack up interest rates to create a recession and take out on the backs of consumers, i.e. demand, what is really largely a supply side, global supply side problem. Now, Prices will come down as the recession deepens, uh, but I predict uh, that those prices will not come down to the 2% goal of the Fed. They will stick around 4 to 5%. So we're going to have recession and still significant inflation, 4 to 5% here uh, by early next year. 
they're raising interest rates, which means the cost of money is higher, which means that mortgages cost more, which means that people can't afford either to buy the home they wanted or to buy a home at all. So then those people turn to the rental market, which means that there's more demand on apartments and rental properties, which means supply and demand tells us that when that happens, rent goes up. Yeah. So as as the next, I, I all of that as the predicate to this, voters demand Biden take action to address national crisis of rising housing costs. So the action that the Fed is taking is actually causing bigger problems as in housing, and they don't really want to draw the linkage. I don't hear the analysts on the mainstream programs making those connections. Yeah, well, very clearly, uh, rental prices follow uh, housing prices. Uh, there's other factors driving rent prices, too, mm -hmm. uh, including mm -hmm. the facts that they uh, they dropped uh, the late last year. The moratorium. All, all moratoriums. And, uh, you know, what a lot of these landlords were doing was they were refusing uh, to participate with the renters in getting subsidies that did exist for a while, right? Uh, because, um, you know, if they did that, uh, they then would freeze their ability to raise their rents. They knew that the rent subsidy thing was going to go away and they were going to jack up their rents. And that's exactly what they're doing right now. They're Wait a minute. Up their rents. Mississippi, we did a story earlier in the week. Uh, the state of Mississippi returned hundreds of millions of dollars to the, to the federal government that was targeted for rental subsidies. Right. Not just Mississippi, it's everywhere. Uh, they didn't spend it. Well, why didn't they spend it? Because the landlords didn't want to participate in the program. You see, if if you were a renter uh, under that program, you had to uh, petition, you had to write, you had to apply for, for that rental subsidy. But your landlord had to agree and sign it too. The landlords wouldn't sign it. That's why you had all this money left over that once they got rid of the program, they just give back to the government, you see. But your mainstream media doesn't tell you that. Correct. Here's an interesting article in The Hill. Biden keeps student loan borrowers in suspense over payment pause. And, you know, but I've said this all along. I mean, there's always the discussion, Dr. Jack. Let me ask you to throw this, throw this in, the, in for discussion. There's the issue of forgiving student loans, right? But I keep saying, but it's a predatory practice. So, yes, even if you, oh, we're going to, you know, forgive 10000 which you should. I'm not opposing that. I think it's a good idea. But after that, you come back with another that just gives you a temporary pause for a small group. And then you have another generation of people afterwards with the exact same thing going on. Your thoughts? Yeah, well, you know, the student debt market is a uh uh, about $2 trillion. Uh, the media reports $1.7 trillion, but that doesn't include uh, parent student loans. You know, you add a couple hundred billion more to that. It's about $2 trillion, right? Um, and what's really uh, the crime is that the, the, the federal government student loans charge students a higher interest rate than the private banks do. Now, why is that? Why do they charge 4 or 5% on the government you know, and uh, the bankers charge, uh, you know, one to two percent less. Well, because they've got this this uh, shell game going here, the government and, and the banks in which uh, they push students to consolidate 
at a lower interest rate. In other words, they push these loans over to the private sector once again. Uh, and that's why they keep uh, the government uh, uh, interest rates higher, uh, you know, in order to do that. Now, you know, they've been pushing this moratorium, moratorium, uh, extending, and I think Biden's going to do it again. I think he will uh, soon extend a moratorium till at least the end of the year. I think he will announce some $10,000, but not do it. He's going to say, I'm going to do it, but he's going to backload it. Why are they doing all this? Because it's a, a, an election ploy. Uh, it's, it's an election mm -hmm. uh, you know, gimmick that the, the Democrats are using, just like, you know, they're using uh, uh, Roe v. Wade. We're, we're going to do something about that, you know. Uh, and in the same way they use the Trump stuff, they, they leave this stuff hanging out there so that people think, well, if we vote for them again, maybe this time they'll give it to us. Uh, so they, they play this game with student loans as well. Um, they can't allow uh, people to go back and start paying 1.7 uh, trillion dollars. You know, uh, I mean that would cut income and consumptions badly right in the middle of a recession. So they're going to keep extending the, uh, you know, the the uh, payments here, the, the forbearance as they call it, uh, and they're going to get a little closer to announcing they may do something about 10,000. Uh, but they're dangling it out there in front of, uh, you know, students and families. Oh, you know, vote for us again. Maybe this time we'll do it, you know. <laughs> Jack, here's what I see as being the flip side to that and why I think they're wrong in the manner in which they're doing it. In fact, I just had this conversation last night with somebody who said to me, basically, African-Americans blindly follow the Democrats. I said, no, that's based on policy that the Democrats passed in the late 50s through the 60s, all the civil rights legislation that bought the Democrats a loyal constituency. If Joe Biden were to actually forbear these loans, eliminate these loans, he would create for himself a loyal constituency because this would have a dramatic positive impact on the lives of a lot of people. And they would say, this guy did something good for me. The Democrats did something good for me. And they would remain loyal to the party because they actually got something tangible for their vote. Yeah, but the bankers don't want. For, ah. uh, the bankers, that's his real <laughs> constituency. Thank it's, you. It's Thank you, Jack. There you go. You know? Uh, they, they uh, I mean, this guy Biden's from Delaware. That's where most banks are. That's where the bankers are. Reason, you know, uh, and uh, the bankers don't like creating a precedent of debt exp uh, expunge. Right. You know, they don't want that precedent. Right. Uh, that opens the door. That opens Pandora's box. They don't like that idea at all. Uh, plus, you know, it would eliminate this this game that I described of uh, pushing people through debt 
student debt consolidation over to the banks. Uh, it, it would eliminate all that interest income. Uh, so the bankers, the real constituency of the corporate wing of the Democratic Party that runs that party, you know, Bernie Sanders hasn't figured that out yet, I guess. Neither has AOC, right? Uh, they still keep knocking their heads up against that brick wall that somehow they're going to reform the Democratic Party and get them to to pass legislation like Build Back Better, uh, which has been totally gutted now in this phony uh, IRA bill. Um, you know, they don't understand or they understand and they're playing the, the part of the game, too. Uh, but the Democrat corporate wing, you know, the DLC that took over that party under Bill Clinton has been running it ever since and vetting all of the, you know, the candidates. Um, uh, you know, their constituency is big business, you know, the pharmaceutical companies, the tech companies, the bankers who give them lots of money for campaigns. They'll talk the talk uh, for the voters. Uh, but when it comes right down to it, um, you know, they vote uh, for whoever pays uh, their way. And you can see it in this IRA bill. Uh, you can also see it in the previously just passed uh, CHIPS bill, $280 billion, uh, you know, boondoggle subsidy for tech companies, right, and manufacturing companies, you know, giving them $280 billion dollars. And, uh, you know, this uh, this bill here and the infrastructure bill, which gave, uh, you know, another six hundred billion dollars to corporations. Uh, that's a spending in the last year. Six hundred billion infrastructure, uh, two hundred eighty billion uh, uh, to, uh, you know, tech companies. And now, hey, Dr. Jack, you got to add last June. 250 billion to tech companies. It was the exact same bill as the 280 billion they did this year. So that's half a trillion right there. Yeah. Well, you know, the point is, uh, you know, and I'm making that you're in the past year they've given a corporation somewhere around a one and a half trillion dollars at least. You know, which was what Sanders had proposed uh, spending on social programs for people. They just took that money <laughs> and they gave it to the corporations and all this legislation passed in the last year. And the Democrats running around, you know, uh, patting each other on the back. Look at all what we accomplished. It, it won't get to the street and it won't get them any votes either. It won't get to the street and it won't get them any votes. Final point. We've got about a minute and a half left child tax credit failure of the IRA bill to extend the, the child tax credit is a tremendous missed opportunity. Yeah, well, that was part of the uh, uh, Build Back Better, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, the whole idea was to continue that, uh, extend it. It was uh, when it was first passed under COVID, it was temporary, right? Uh, and a lot of that child credit was really just uh, moving next year's uh, tax filing tax credit uh, into the present. You know, part of it was moving it forward. Uh, it wasn't anything that was really net new, mm -hmm. although there was some mm -hmm. of it that was not. It was good. You know, the child right. tax credit was a good measure. Uh, but, the, you know, they, they dropped that uh, late last year when they uh, canned uh, Build Back Better in November uh, and got the infrastructure bill passed at the expense of Build Back Better. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, in the past year, you can sum it up in saying, well, Build Back Better, uh, which was uh, being negotiated throughout 2021, uh, keeping Sanders on the hook, right, uh, was uh, dropped in uh, favor of getting Manchin and others to vote for 
uh, the infrastructure bill that, mm -hmm. you know, provided money for corporations uh, that made uh, that, that put the nail in the coffin to build back better, uh, build back better money that would have been spent now in 2022 is being spent on these corporate subsidy bills, the chip bill, mm -hmm. the infrastructure bill, and now the uh, it's misnamed Inflation Reduction <laughs> Act. Dr. Jack Rasmus, as always, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate that analysis. And we look forward to having you back. Always glad to join you guys. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Middle East Eye reports their money, not ours. 9-11 families urge Biden to return frozen funds to Afghans. This while the United States does not have legal authority to seize Russian central bank assets frozen due to its intervention in Ukraine, according to Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen. But talks with U.S. partners over ways to make Russia foot the bill for Ukraine's post-war reconstruction are starting. Now, that, I think, is funny. For insight into this, we turn to our next guest. He holds the John Jay and Rebecca Moore's Chair of History and African-American Studies at the University of Houston, one of the most prolific writers of our time. His latest book is entitled The Counter-Revolution of 1836, Texas Slavery, Jim Crow, and the Roots of American Fascism, Dr. Gerald Horn. As always, sir, welcome back. Thank you for inviting me. So families of 9-11 victims have called on the administration of President Biden to release billions of dollars held by Afghanistan Central Bank to the U.S. In a letter sent to Biden this past Tuesday, family members called on the president to modify an executive order from February, which froze the Afghan Central Bank's $7 billion of assets in the U.S. Federal Reserve. Any use of the $7 billion to pay off 9-11 family members' judgments is legally suspect and morally wrong, the family members wrote in the letter. And I find it interesting that they went morally wrong on this uh, because they're right. But your thoughts, Dr. Gerald Horn? Well, obviously, this is a very complicated question. But I think that Washington is playing with fire in terms of confiscating, apparently, Afghan funds, confiscating Russian funds. We call that uh, just months ago it emerged that London is holding on with sticky fingers to funds from Venezuela. And I think that this reflects not only a certain kind of hawkishness in terms of foreign policy, it also reflects a certain correlation of forces domestically, because if you look at today's New York Times, there's an op-ed by Wall Street man Stephen Ratner, who used to work for the New York Times. And he's talking about the fact that the Ballyhooed Inflation Reduction Act, which is predominantly a climate and health bill signed into law by Mr. Biden just days ago, 
has left the 1% basically untouched. Uh, this is largely due to the administrations of Senator Sinema of Arizona. But given that, one can understand why Washington is scrounging around for revenue. And, of course, reference here the hysteria generated by senior members of the GOP, speaking of Senator Chuck Grassley of Iowa in the first place, who are arguing that this act, which authorizes a significant infusion of billions of funds for the Internal Revenue Service, will lead to armed IRS agents knocking on the doors of the Trump base and extracting funds, which is obviously a bridge too far, but it helps to illustrate why it might be the case that Washington is seeking to plunder the resources of other countries. In that regard, you should connect the other dot, which is that uh, President Xi Jinping, who has been uh, under virtual quarantine domestically, at least, that is to say not engaging in foreign travel, is about to embark upon his first journey since the spring of 2020. And interestingly enough, he said it's to Saudi Arabia. Now, this is striking for a number of reasons. Uh, you know, of course, that 15 of the 19 hijackers on September 11, 2001, were reputed to be Saudi nationals, that Mr. Biden went to Saudi Arabia on hands and knees just weeks ago, uh, begging uh, de facto leader Mohammed bin Salman to turn on the taps and pump more oil so that the price of gasoline at the pump might go down. And we expect that President Xi Jinping will get a fulsome welcome in Riyadh when he arrives, unlike the rather humdrum welcome that Mr. Biden received during his recent visit. And this bespeaks, once again, the shifting correlation of forces globally. The Saudi foreign ministry apparently knows what time it is. Uh, They see the rise of China. Uh, They see the decline of the United States. And they're deciding to try to hitch a ride aboard the winning train. I should also say in that regard, that pay attention to the People's Bank of China, which is about to launch, we think, a digital currency, in which case uh, we don't usually give investment advice on these airwaves, but listeners might be well advised to uh, uh, open their piggy banks and deposit their pennies into the digital renminbi because that would be a vote for the future. Also, when I read, you know, of course, we see the U.S., oddly enough, in U.K., you know, they're seizing money from Russia. Recently, the U.K. went back after the U.S. went to talk to President Maduro about oil. The U.K. has once again ruled that they have to keep Venezuela's gold because Juan Guaido is the president. So seeing all of this, that leads me to this thing I want to throw out to you, that much like the digital currency you just said, President Putin has said that when the BRICS people and all get their act together, they want to create a new international currency based on a basket of commodities. And Saudi Arabia be involved. One of those 
those commodities would be, of course, oil, which may mean that Saudi Arabia would either demand that currency or say we'll take dollars or this currency or whatever at any rate. What are your thoughts on looking at this and thinking there's a whole lot of people around the world saying whenever that currency becomes available, I want to do business in that because that way it won't be grabbed up by the West? Well, obviously, there's something to your point. uh, But on a more sober note, uh, I'd like to remind one and all what happened to Saddam Hussein after it was Mm -hmm. rumored that he was going to try to shift out of the dollar for payment for Iraqi oil. Uh, What happened to Muammar Gaddafi of Libya when he suggested the same thing? Uh, Both men wound up being killed, interestingly enough, uh, both killed on camera. If you have the stomach, uh, you can watch it if you have that sort of gruesome taste. However, with regard to the Saudis, uh, keep in mind that just a year or two ago at the Group of 20 meeting in Buenos Aires, Argentina, uh, Mr. Putin and Mohammed bin Salman were quite buddy-buddy, which raised eyebrows in Washington. Eyebrows were raised further when news reports emerged this year that with regard to the sell of Russian petroleum, that the Russians were somehow selling that oil through the good offices of their friends in Saudi Arabia and reaping revenue at the same time. Uh, With regard to Britain and its attempt to loot the Venezuelans, well, You can understand that if you're following the headlines with regard to what's happening uh, in Britain, inflation's at 10 percent. At the same time, uh, defrocked Prime Minister Boris Johnson is holidaying in Greece. The two candidates to take his place, Mr. Sunak and Madam Truss, are now trying to out-demagogue one another in terms of how they're going to be the first to cut taxes Uh, even though public services, particularly the vaunted National Health Services, is basically on life support. At the same time, uh, with Brexit not delivering the way it was thought that it was going to deliver, you hear more rumblings, not only in terms of Scotland exiting the European Union, uh, but also Northern Ireland, which is now a component part of Great Britain, Uh, You have leaders there talking confidently that in the next decade there will be Irish reunification, uh, leaving a sort of rump England uh, to preside uh, in London. So what's happening to the U.K. uh, might be a harbinger of what happens to the United States of America, which is having its own rumblings, I'm afraid to say, uh, with regard to civil war, uh, with regard to manifest unrest, as suggested by the comments that I just quoted a moment ago from Senator Grassley and Fox News, uh, which are ginning up the Trump base 75 million strong, which can only end in tears. And to your comment about the G20, 
it's now reported that in the South China Morning Post that Beijing will support the African Union in its decades-long quest to join the G20. Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi said this yesterday, and Indonesian President Joko Widodo said last month that he would invite the African bloc, representing 55 countries and 14 billion people, to the summit in Bali in November to help the bid. That's not looking good for U.S. hegemony. Oh, not at all. And recall as well that during the tour of Africa recently conducted by Russian Foreign Minister uh, Sergei Lavrov, he brooded the question of African representation on the Security Council, the top table at the United Nations, where, of course, as of now, there is no Latin American representation, there is no African representation, the only uh, non-European, if you look at the United States as a derivative of Europe, the only non-European representation being from the People's Republic of China. And so I think that it'll be, the ball will now be in the court of the North Atlantic nations. Will they accede to these reasonable uh, decisions or will they stonewall? And I, it's understandable why there are these overtures to Africa, not only because of its uh, four dozen plus numbers in the United Nations General Assembly, uh, constituting a hefty block in that uh, 200 member strong body, but also if you look at demography, uh, it's striking to note that as of today, people of African descent are about 12 to 13 to 14 percent of global population, but within a few decades, this population will be about 25% of global population, uh, leaving uh, Africa in an advantageous position, particularly when you look at the declining birth rates in Italy and Japan in particular. Uh, perhaps with tongue-in-cheek, uh, there have been demographers who suggested that within a few decades, there will be no Italians, there will be no Japanese. Now, obviously, you can't take that seriously, but the larger point is clear, uh, that we are living through momentous times, and the world will be changing accordingly. The question is, will those in the United States, not only in the corridors of power and for the bottom at the State Department, but also uh, in the neighborhoods and in the barrios and the hollows, will they be able to adjust accordingly? Looking at, you know, this, I mean, now the discussion, it's interesting because the discussion now is about alliances with Latin America, alliances with the Middle East, alliances with Africa, that you know, even though it's a very dangerous time, and let's hope we all make it through this unscathed, there seems to be a time of great hope for areas of the world that have been left behind by the European colonialism that is now, you know, transformed into U.S. empire colonialism. But there seems to be, you know, some things on the horizon and maybe some opportunities that weren't there before for the what used to be called the third world, and now they call it the developing nations. Dr. Horn. Well, I think you have a point, and certainly your point is backed up by polling data, which suggests much more optimism in the so-called global south and the developing countries than there is in the citadel of imperialism, speaking of the United States of America. And once again, if we examine the rhetoric coming out of the United States of America, 
uh, perhaps it's not accidental that the slogan that has captured the imagination of all too many, that is to say, make America great again, is backward looking. Uh, it reflects a certain kind of nostalgia for the past as opposed to optimism for the future. Optimism for the future is what you aspire in Africa, for example, whereas nostalgia for the past, an era when white supremacy was more valued than it is today, an era when voices like ours would not be found uh, speaking <laughs> to, to uh, thousands, if not millions, on a regular basis. And so it's understandable why there's this backward glance uh, in Washington and across the country, but I'm afraid to say that they, too, will have to adjust to what might turn out to be painful, changing reality. South African minister accuses West of bullying on Ukraine, Naledi Pandor. South African Minister of International Business met with Anthony Blinken while he went on his uh, visit to South Africa, and she lectured him quite clearly and quite directly. He was there saying, our commitment to a stronger partnership with Africa is not about trying to outdo anyone else. He talked about uh, sovereignty, and he talked about all kinds of other things. And she was very clear, just as much as the people of Ukraine deserve their territory and freedom, the people of Palestine deserve their territory and freedom. And we should be equally concerned at what is happening to the people of Palestine as we are with what is happening to the people of Ukraine. I found it very interesting that she as a South African, injects the Palestinian question into her meeting with Tony Blinken. And she says, we're not going to allow you to sit here and bully us anymore. That, to me, is a clear demonstration of a change in perspective, not to mention the fact that in the last over the last 18 months, there have been six or seven coups backed by AFRICOM against African leaders. Well, if you look at the book I published a few years ago on the history of the struggle against colonialism in Southern Africa, uh, culminating with South African independence in 1994, you will quickly see this term used repeatedly, the term being coercive diplomacy, which sounds like a misnomer. It sounds like an inherent contradiction, but that reflected U.S. foreign policy, particularly after Angola and Mozambique came to independence in 1975, there was a diplomacy aspect insofar as Washington set up embassies, particularly in Maputo, Mozambique. But at the same time, uh, off the books, Washington was sponsoring uh, anti-government guerrillas. And those anti-government guerrillas exacted quite a price on Mozambique, virtually bringing the nation to its knees. And I think that's what the South African minister was speaking to uh, when she suggested that uh, the region no longer would accept that kind of bullying. Now, of course, uh, Mr. Blinken was speaking like some sort of uh, Philadelphia lawyer talking out of both sides of his mouth. Uh, that is to say, as he was telling the Africans that he was conferring with, mm -hmm. South Africa, Rwanda, and Democratic Republic of the Congo, that uh, he thinks that they should do it their way. Uh, that is to say, uh, not uh, necessarily tail after Washington. Uh, however, they had second thoughts. 
Dr. Gerald Horn, as always, thank you so much for your time. We appreciate that analysis. Have a wonderful weekend, and we look forward to having you back. Take care. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's another hour on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. U.S. dooming EU to hunger, cold, isolation in bid to cling to power, says Duma Speaker. Quote, Washington is ready to do everything to maintain its power over the world, sacrificing the welfare of citizens and the economy of European countries, according to Vyacheslav Volodin. What does all of this mean? Well, it's Friday. It's panel time. For insight, let's turn to the first panel. We're joined by a writer at the Polemicist.net and Counterpunch, and he's author of Ukraine Negotiation Kabuki. Jim Cavanaugh, as always, Jim, welcome back. Thanks for having me. We're also joined by the national, he's the national organizer for Action for Assange, Steve Poikinen. Steve, welcome back. Thank you very much. Good to be here. The United States seeks to maintain its power over the world by damaging European countries and actually dooming them to isolation, according to Russian State Duma Speaker Vyacheslav Volodin. He said this today. Washington has condemned Europe to hunger, cold, and isolation. They're ready to do everything to maintain their power over the world. You know, that's true, Jim Cavanaugh, but I also see... EU countries complicit in their own demise. Jim Cavanaugh. Yeah, exactly. This is you no know, they're not being forced by by the United States. The, the leaders of those countries are uh completely on board with it, in some cases ahead of the pack. Uh you know, it was um uh, Bo- Bojo who told Zelensky probably on behalf of the United States, certainly the blessing of the United States, not to make an agreement with Russia in, in March when it was looked like there might have been an agreement. It's been countries like Lithuania, Estonia, Latvia, the Baltic countries, and Poland who have been, you know, vigorously promoting the most militant uh, actions against Russia. So, you know, this is not something that's, uh, that anybody's being, uh, that the leadership, at least in these countries, isn't being forced to do. And uh, this is the danger. This is the danger, you know, that we see now that uh, the reports that the United States is saying it's okay for, U- for Ukraine to use its, its weapons to attack Crimea, which was always implicit. Now they're saying it explicitly. You know, the Ukraine has attacked rocket attacks on Russian towns again yesterday. So these are very dangerous situations. And if anything, the Baltic states and, and England are at least as militantly Russophobic and want to bring this war, you know, in, increase the militarism against Russia as the United States. Steve. Oh, that's, I mean, that's absolutely fair analysis from Jim there. It, the, the, you're never going to run out of operators for HIMARS if you keep supplying the weapons. And that's the one thing 
that the U.S. Uh, and the U.K. have made perfectly clear, even in CBS's now, I guess, uh, banned or retracted or redacted documentary, where uh, there was an interview with a guy who said, look, yeah, we know that 70% of the weapons are, are you know, being intercepted, sold off, never reach their intended target. That's okay. We don't care about that because the 30% that are, boy, oh, boy, do they work, and that's all that we need out of this is just enough weapons being fired. So they they ratcheted up longstanding tensions, nationalistic, uh, you know, points of pride. They've allowed a culture of, of Nazism to flourish, uh, not just in Ukraine, but in all of what were, you know, East Bloc nations, um, where the U.S. has established CIA front groups that train and recruit and arm and, uh, you know, go send out into the world Nazi, neo-Nazi uh, little terror groups. Um, this is the fruition of that. Now they basically have carte blanche with the entire U.S. weapons system and NATO weapons system. If I could just take issue with one thing Steve said, at the current rate of attrition, one battalion a day, I think the Ukrainians could run out of HIMARS operators <laughs> if they continue down this path. That's my only yeah. point. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, I, look, Lindsey Graham and Nancy Pelosi are willing to fight to the last Ukrainian, so I guess we're going to find out. There, there you go. There you go. There was the 10th annual Moscow Conference on International Security, and what is interesting is that President Putin had a speech. His defense minister, Shoigu, had also a very interesting speech, but I'm going to read just a little bit from from it and get you guys thoughts. The United States and its vassals grossly interfere in the international affairs of sovereign states by staging provocations, organizing coups, or inciting civil wars. By threats, blackmail, and pressure, they are trying to force independent states to submit to their will and follow the rules that are alien to them. This is being done with just one aim in view, which is to pervert, preserve their domination. The centuries-old model that enables them to sponge on everything in the world, but a model of this this sort can only be retained by force. A very interesting speech, a small part of it. Start with you, Jim Cavanaugh, your thoughts. Yeah, you know, you, you see that speech, the speech by, by Putin, you know, uh, Chomsky could have written this, you know. These guys have an analysis of the world, which is <laughs> correct, <laughs> fundamentally correct, uh, and so they understand the large dynamics of what's happening in the world and the United States place in it. You know, I don't have to, nobody has to uh, glorify the Russian position. The Russian position is, is you know, we don't like having a, a unipolar hegemon telling us what to do. And in that case, it's, you know, it's consistent with the interests of a lot of other countries in the world, what the ultimate fate of Russia will be as a country in the world, we don't know. Uh, and I'm, you know, as skeptical of that as anything else. But in terms of their analysis of what's going on right now, and the, the, the change in the world situation and the decline in American hegemony, and the, the fact that the United States does not want to give up that hegemony, and will, it is doing everything it can, and throwing other countries and other people into the battle ahead of it in order to protect it, is essentially correct. And, you know, it, it, to see the difference between the discourse of Putin and Shoigu and, and the discourse of people like Anthony Blinken and Joe, Joe Biden, it's like, you know, it's, it, 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 it's, it's kindergarten versus, you know, 
PhD level or whatever, you even just kindergarten versus adults. <laughs> I mean, and so and it, it's this is the problem. We're in a situation where the people, but the, but the kindergartners have a lot of toys and they have a lot of very dangerous weapons that there are they're willing to and are throwing into the battle here, and they're going to bust up a lot of people and, and do a lot of damage. Let me read one more sentence to you. That kind of It almost sounds like he's channeling his inner Steve Poikin in, Steve. Uh, it is clear that by taking these actions, the Western globalist elites are attempting, among other things, to divert the attention of their own citizens from pressing socioeconomic problems, such as plummeting living standards, unemployment, poverty, and deindustrialization. I think he's been listening to your show on Rockfin every morning because Vladimir Putin sounds similar to Steve Poikin. Steve. Well, I, you know, uh, golly, Garland, it's, uh, it's an honor, it's an honor to, to have uh, the president uh, of Russia as a listener. Um, I, he's not, he's not wrong. The, and, and this is a very odd situation where you have a, a Western military establishment that has viewed Russia as a traditional enemy for a very long time who would, I believe, like nothing more than to fully engage. And they're being held back by a, you know, a, a group of business concerns that rent different politicians every election cycle. Sometimes they hang on to them, sometimes they don't. And these are the people that are ultimately going to direct policy because it's happening on an international level. Um, we keep discussing it, but we're... You know, whether the whether the West Point crowd wants a multipolar world or not, it's happening. And the people that are going to take advantage of it are those global Western elite who are sitting on the boards of the International Bank of Settlements, the World Bank and IMF, and other various central banks, and the weapons manufacturers. It's not going to be your average grunt soldier. It's not going to be near you. It's not going to be your average worker anywhere in the West. Vladimir Putin knows this. He also knows that he has a nation full of nationalists, largely, on board with the plan. Same with China. Whereas in the U.S., you can use this kind of thing as a wedge issue to further divide a population that has, in my opinion, not been this divided at any point in our history. So you're not left out, Jim Kavanaugh. In another part of the speech, I think he's channeling his inner Dr. Jim Kavanaugh. The situation in Ukraine shows that the U.S. is attempting to draw out this conflict. It acts in the same way elsewhere, fomenting the conflict potential in Asia, Africa, and Latin America. As is common knowledge, the U.S. has recently made another deliberate attempt to fuel the flames and stir up trouble in the Asia-Pacific. The U.S. escape towards Taiwan is not just a voyage by an irresponsible politician, but part of the purpose-oriented and deliberate U.S. strategy designed to destabilize the situation and sow chaos in the region of the world. It's a brazen demonstration of disrespect for other countries and their own international commitments. We regard this as thoroughly planned provocation. Jim Kavanaugh, I think he's channeling his inner Jim Kavanaugh. (laughs) Well, it's an amazing speech. I really, uh, and you know, this is what the United States does. It's what it can do. It's what's left to it now is to create chaos. You know, it can't really win anything, but it can make everybody else lose. It can try to make everybody else lose. And it's what it's doing in Ukraine. It's 
you know, creating chaos, throwing Ukraine into the fire in order to try and create chaos that will destabilize ultimately Russia. And that's what they're doing with Taiwan. They're trying to provoke a crisis that will create chaos, that will put Ukraine into the, uh, uh, Taiwan into the fire and create a chaos that might, you know, they hope eventually and somehow will destabilize China and break it up. They want the breakup of China. They want the breakup of Russia. They tried to do it in the Southern Caucasus in the 90s in Russia. They tried to do it in Xinjiang, Xinjiang in, in China. They try to do it any way they can. They, they, they're, they're desperate to uh, break up the Eurasian landmass and prevent it from emerging as a, a center of the world, the world economy and the world's military power, too. And it's going to be kind of hard to do that, <laughs> practically impossible to do that. But they can destroy a lot of things along the way, including the whole damn world, if they get involved in a nuclear war, which is a, a real danger here. Because those countries, China is not going to let this go on and not going to put up with any, any kind of provocation, just as Russia ended up doing what it said. We are not going to, there's a, there's a limit to this, and we keep telling you this, and you, it's dangerous. So we're in a very, very, very dangerous situation in the world because the American, the, the, the children and the kindergartners in, in, in charge of American policy really think, you know, the best you can make, I'll make another announcement, they're in a kind of high school clique where they're the cool kids and everybody else is going to do what they say. It ain't going to work. Steve. Well, I mean, he, he's absolutely right. It's not going to work. How, how the, <laughs> there's no, there are very few moves that the U.S. can make militarily, that the the NATO states can make militarily, that don't wind up in total annihilation. They're in no point doing, or they're in no headspace, I guess, to engage diplomatically. Everything they've tried in terms of economic sanctions backfired on them. And yet, the that every turn, they're sending more and more people to to Taiwan. They were, you know, we had a flood of celebrities go to Ukraine. We're probably going to see Angelina Jolie and Ben Stiller show up over in Taiwan in a week or two. They're opening uh, a new trade talks right to spite China. Um, these are the moves. I think Jim said kindergartners. If you if you gave all of the kindergartners like a month's supply of Ritalin all at once <laughs> and then tossed in a two liter of Mountain Dew and shut the door, that, that's basically what they're behaving as at 100 percent. Sweep weeks on FBI TV, national news media and federal law enforcement are now as indistinguishable in America as in any autocratic country anywhere. This is a piece on Substack by Matt Taibbi. Jim Cavanaugh, your thoughts on how now, whether it's intel individuals or whether it's military uh, individuals, have now been so clearly and seamlessly incorporated into the so-called analysis of mainstream rhetoric. Yeah, they roll the paid consultants and paid uh, analysts for MSNBC. And this has been going on since Russiagate. It's Russiagate continued. Uh, you know, they're all out there. The, the FBI, the CIA, these guys who are liars, who lie to Congress, Clapper, McCabe, you know, people who were who are disgraced and, and obviously were doing things out of even personal, but certainly political uh, animus towards Trump, you know, and they're all being presented as, you know, 
not only they are presented, but the institutions they represent, which, you know, the, the, the so-called, the, the, the American lefts and progressives and liberals for 30, 40 years were like, the FBI is a repressive state apparatus. It's a repressive state apparatus. It is the, it was the arm of the McCarthy state, and it still is. They got on television last year and said, oh, well, our job has always been to put, uh, make sure the left doesn't come to power anywhere in the United States. So that's what their job is. And now you have the uh, you know the, the the media arm of the democratic party the television arm msnbc you know becoming a a vehicle for the prop- the promotion and defense of the fbi and the cia I, the national security state and anybody who criticizes me how could you criticize the fbi that means you're in favor of child pornography it's always going to be drugs or child pornography or terrorism you know we protect you from everything and and uh, you know this is just, it's, it's terribly depressing to see. And, uh, but, and I, it's kind of destabilizing dis, dis, to the right wing now because you, got, you have to have the Republicans and Pence and Fox News have to become now saying, well, it's okay to criticize the FBI. <laughs> you know? Or Pence actually said, no, you can't criticize the FBI. But, uh, you know, the traditional Republican right wing police state, you know, has been just as Clinton, you know, co opted. The, the anti-welfare uh, discourse, now the Democrats have completely co-opted the authoritarian pro-police, pro-intelligence agency, pro-FBI discourse. I've got to add this to it because there's another article, Meta Steps Up Information Control Ahead of U.S. Elections. And I think these two things go together, Steve, um, for obvious reasons. And I think uh, what we're going to look at now, it's kind of the Hunter Biden laptop gate part two, but they're going to start earlier and they're going to go much more hardcore on it. And I also feel like they're going to start setting up excuses. They know they're going to get beat, but they're going to try to mitigate it. Then they're going to have excuse afterwards. It was online, you know, influence. It was the Russians or the Martians or whoever the heck. But let's go with you, Steve, your thoughts on this mess. Well, it, it's definitely a mess. And it, it, there's uh, there's a handful of clips of people um, kind not really giving Jim Acosta his flowers for asking Andrew Yang a follow-up, but for asking Andrew Yang a question and embarrassing Andrew Yang and making him look bad. Well, that was the exact same day, or it was the day after he, he gave a back rub to the national security state in terms of, of, you know, well, if you question the FBI, then obviously you're giving a pass to child molesters kind of thing about it. That, so it, they always present, there's always one dupe that they'll put on the corporate press to where they can show someone asking a question. As the distraction when you allow these conversations to take place and reinforce the narrative of the FBI is a force for good in the world. And they're just out there trying to do the best they can with the information they have at the time to stop the bad guys wherever they lay. And that's not the history of the FBI. That's not the history of the CIA. It's not the history of the U.S. police in general, period. Now we're giving guns to or giving more guns to IRS agents to back up the FBI when they go after, you know, you, you, the guy that you see at the grocery store that has a landscaping business and a truck he got on Craigslist that he hasn't claimed yet or something. I know they saw a video. Um, but to the to your other point, though, we have Sam Harris now, intellectual thought leader of the left, one of them, saying it's okay to have a conspiracy, to have uh, you know people throw an election if you don't like the candidate on the other side enough. So with the Hunter Biden laptop story, 100%. But now there's permission to allow for 
you know, much more important and smart people to step in, intervene, and make sure that the quote-unquote right person not wins the election, but is elected. Jim, you discussed it, but add the second part where Meta and Twitter, they're stepping in. They bragged that they banned more than 270 white supremacist organizations. Of, of course, the uh, clearly the Azov Battalion wasn't one of them. But your thoughts on the election integrity policies that Meta and Twitter have announced that they're going to be, you know, trying to get rid of misinformation and promote reputable news outlets. Well, you know, I'm sure, Colin, that you will end up being... Uh, uh, censored as a white supremacist organization. <laughs> <laughs> because that's what they do. Anything that's to the left of the... Specifically left, this show. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Wilmer and I. Yeah, you're going to be just a white percent because any of the left of the Democratic Party is right wing <laughs> and white supremacist and uh, anti, not anti-black, as Nina Turner. But, uh, <laughs> but, you know, but who thinks, who can take seriously the idea that what Meta and Facebook and Twitter are going to do is manage the discourse before the election in a fair and honest way, in a way that doesn't favor one or another candidate. You know, after what they did, and, I, you know, damn, hell with Trump. It's not. But after what they did with the, the Hunter Biden laptop and the whole thing that they admit was ridiculous but they're going to do it again you know and they did that to hunter biden's laptop they did that they, they suppressed that story they look at what's happened and i'm going to say this absolutely for two years they told you stories about uh covid covid the vaccine this and that anybody who disagreed with it, the scientists the doctors cut them off this information now they're all coming back and saying exactly what everybody's been saying for two years natural immunity is good whatever point is they've been telling you things that weren't true they don't get cut off they are there to manage the discourse on behalf of the dominant section of the elite that they're allied with, and that's what they're going to do. That's, anybody who thinks they're going to do anything else, there's anything about fairness or the information or disinformation or misinformation or truth versus falsity, is a fool at this point, just a blatant fool. So we know that's what's going to happen, and that's what they're announcing. Steve, here's one of the things that I find very interesting about this meta story. The company will ban new political, social, and electoral issue ads during the last week before the election, ensuring no October surprises, factual or otherwise. So it doesn't matter whether it's factual or not. They're just going to put, a, put the kibosh on all new information the week before the election. <laughs> this is this is cartoonish. I mean, it really is. This is something that you would expect to see on a Saturday morning, right before the Legion of Doom bubbles up through the surface of the water, where they're like, and this is how we're going to shut information out of society. Uh, this, I, this is phenomenally stupid. Uh, the, the, the idea that, A, just Meta and Twitter are the purveyors of all information on the Internet, period, anyway, is laughable. But now they've encouraged the Internet to go find information elsewhere after having it lock on it virtually for the last 10 years. Both of these platforms, or all three of them, because you count Instagram, too, have come out and said, we don't want you coming to us anymore 
for your news aggregate. Go find someone else. So I encourage everyone to take their <laughs> advice and suggestions and do just that. Go ahead, Jim. Let me just say this about that. They're not going to do that. And, <laughs> and anybody who believes it is false. They are going to allow a political ads to two weeks before the election. If something important happens in the way that they want, they're going to allow it. If there's a war breaks out or something breaks out and it's going to be and Trump is running and there's a political ad against Trump on that path, they're going to allow it. And I think anybody who doesn't believe that, doesn't see that coming, you're a fool. <laughs> exactly, Jim. They're going to allow the things that push the narrative that they want. U.S. to hold formal trade talks with Taiwan, angering China. In another show of U.S. support for Taiwan, and I guess in the same way that they supported Ukraine, and if I'm Taiwan, I don't want that kind of support, Washington and Taipei will begin formal trade negotiations this fall, despite warnings from China against the idea. We'll start with Steve. And I've been saying this for a while. After the Pelosi visit, I am convinced that Russia and China recognize the U.S. is trying to bait them into a fight and that they're not going to bite the hook. They're not going to get bait. That they're looking at the situation saying, you guys, your economy's falling apart. Everything's falling apart. And ours isn't. And we're on the rise. You want to bait us into a fight. We're not. Time is on our side. Your thoughts? Well, I, I agree with that, and mostly because if you're going to a foreign country that shares a, you know, a water border with another country, as your show of strength, you don't send an 82-year-old drunk. You just don't. That's not how you flex. And so they sent Nancy Pelosi. Granted, they sent Paul Pelosi Jr. too. And now just a week and a half, two weeks later, we're talking about having, you know, the very public and uh, as an affront to China trade talks, I do believe 100% that Paul Pelosi Jr.'s presence on that initial visit has a lot to do with these trade deals and these trade talks that are about to take place. The Pelosi family has a ridiculous amount of money tied up in silicon chips and production factories, and that's going to be one of the major things that are discussed at this event. Um, but no, I did Russia and China aren't going to bite at open provocation like this, but what they are going to do is make sure that their nests are feathered when the U.S. tries to do some similar dumb sanctions maneuver like they've done in Ukraine and Syria and everywhere else that's caused this controlled demolition of the Western economy. Jim Cavanaugh, let me add this to the point. U.S. to hold formal trade talks with Taiwan angering China, and to Garland's point, about not being baited into a response. After Nancy Pelosi left, what did China do? They basically shut down Taiwan. They encircled the island, and they engaged in live-fire military drills. So you can hold trade talks all you want, but if you can't get your items off the island, or you can't get your resources to manufacture things onto the island, you can talk about trade all you want. But you're not going to be able to get stuff in, and you're not going to be able to get stuff out. Jim Cavanaugh. Yeah, they demonstrated that they're not playing and that they have the ability to, you know, encircle and stop Taiwanese economy. And, and you know, they will, they, they will practice, and they will, if they need to, attack Taiwan. And this is just craziness that this is becoming to a head. And, you know, it's, it's interesting because when you read that, and when I read that, uh, the, the Putin uh, speech, you know, he said this business in, in Taiwan was a, was a planned provocation. And, you know, we had talked about this a lot, and we had said, oh, you know, 
Biden doesn't control every these people are all going off on their own. Pelosi, you know, the drunken 82-year-old going off on her own, and Biden can't even stop her. Well, now that you have this, you know, uh, this trade uh, delegation going under the auspices of the U.S. de facto embassy in Taiwan, you know, it's very hard for China and Russia not to see this as planned provocation, as not something that's just a bunch of, you know, senators and congressmen going off on their own. The United States government, a president of the United States, has the ability to exercise discipline over his own, his or her own party, and not, not only over his or her own party, but over the Congress, congressional and senatorial delegations in relation to foreign policy. They can exercise that that discipline, and he's either not doing it or more likely he doesn't know what the hell is going Absolutely. on. Someone behind, someone behind the scenes is exercising a discipline and planning steps that are more and more provocative. And it's very dangerous. And, you know, they do this, and they're creating a system. They're telling Taiwan, just like Taiwan is telling, it, it, just like China is telling Taiwan and the United States when they encircle the island, the United States is telling China when, when it sends these delegations, we are going to treat Taiwan as an independent country, and we're going to increase that. We're going to create weapons, we're going to increase trade, and that's what we're going to do. And that's a road to disaster. Jim Cavanaugh and Steve Poikin. And gentlemen, as always, thank you so much for your time. Have wonderful weekends. We really appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Thank you very much. Thank you. Folks, you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. And there's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Judge blocks Florida's Stop Woke Act restrictions for private companies. A federal judge yesterday blocked Florida from enforcing a new state law that limits how private companies teach diversity and inclusion in the workplace, saying the measure violates the Constitution's First Amendment right to freedom of speech and expression. What are the larger implications of efforts such as these. For insight into this and other issues, we turn to our next panel. We're joined by the national organizer of the Black Alliance for Peace and an editor and contributing columnist for the Black Agenda Report, Ajamu Baraka. As always, Ajamu, welcome back. Glad to be here. Thank you. We're also joined by the external relations coordinator for COSA, Kweku Lumumba. As always, Kweku, welcome back. I'm always glad to be here. Thank you. So in a ruling that took aim at one of Governor Ron DeSantis's top priorities, U.S. District Court Judge Mark Walker said Florida has turned the First Amendment upside down by trying to regulate how employers train employees on topics such as racial inclusion and gender equality. Ajamu, we thought this was important, A, because Ron DeSantis is one of the leaders running on hopefully to get the uh, Republican nomination for president. Two, we also see this as a stalking horse. If this had succeeded in Florida, we can only assume that other governors would have tried to impose similar sanctions. So this could have had and still may wind up having very broad implications across the country. Ajamu Baraka. 
Well, I, I can see and understand the, the concern. I was not myself uh, surprised at all with the ruling. I think that the governor um, and the legislature knew that this was going to end up uh, being um, determined to be a violation of the First uh, Amendment. Uh, their objective, uh, I believe, wasn't so much to try to impose this, 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 this law, but to it was a political move mm -hmm. uh, to make a point, um, and um, and they made their point. But my what's interesting to me about this is that they made this they they passed this piece of legislation in a context in which uh, the idea of of freedom of speech. Um, contained in the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, uh, has been under assault. But the elements mainly providing uh, that, uh, that attack on the First Amendment have come from the other side, the Democrats. I believe that, that they would, not attempted, would have attempted this legislation uh, three years ago. But within this current context in which uh, the the limits of constitutionality when it comes to uh, freedom of speech, of the dissemination of information, um, has been under assault, uh, primarily led by neoliberals. They 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 thought they had a more uh, uh, um, uh, 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 they had a, an environment that would have been receptive to the the political. Uh, uh, points they were trying to make with this piece of legislation, and I think they they made the point. Kwaku Lumumba. Yeah, and I, I agree that they they definitely made the point, and I also want to um, just add, you know, for me, looking back at the last several years in which there has been a push to shut down the history that undergirds the what some people would consider progress in the United States. Um, within the Constitution and the realm of the Constitution and otherwise. This this seems to fit that pattern. Um, it, there's a there's been a, many of us who were like, well, don't tear all the statues down of all these racists. Put them in museums so that we can teach our children, our brothers and sisters, and everyone else that comes to migrate to this country what the true history of this country is. And so in that same vein, we see these people who want to take out of the classrooms anything that mentions that history. And I think we're on a dangerous precipice because if we go further, then we're at risk of reliving some of the traumas that we had in the past that our ancestors dealt with in the form of new laws and new Jim Crows that will continue to terrorize our people because we have forgotten what we've overcome and how we overcame it um, because we, could, we decided to allow these kinds of things to pass by. So I think it's very important that we're having this conversation today and that we address these issues before it's too late. You know, I think there's another angle that I'd like to touch on also, and that is the kind of pushback against the woke ideology, wherein when I say woke, I'm using that in a pejorative term, you know, basically where the issue of race or sex or whatever is used as a weapon to smite your enemies. The wokeness of, you know, you didn't say the right thing, you didn't use the right pronoun, so we have to tear you to pieces, and tokenism is used to replace diversity. And that being negative, in my opinion, the whole woke 
woke ideology part is not good for minorities because it uses them as human shields and it creates an inevitable pushback. And while this is clearly and obviously a violation of the First Amendment, I think that the the bad part of the woke ideology is going to create a massive pushback that we're going to see. And a lot of these things are going to get up to that conservative Supreme Court and they're going to get through. Let's start with you, Ajamu. Well, I mean, yeah, that, that, that's, that's a possibility. Um, but I think that the whole idea of, of, of course, wokeism is a, um, something that's been contrived to, to limit uh, conversation, to limit uh, speech, uh, to, in fact, in his own right, to advance a certain uh, worldview and set of values to suggest that uh, that worldview and set of values represents the, the normative uh, values and worldview, and that anything else beyond that is some kind of uh, uh, ideologically driven um, uh, um, set of values and principles that uh, have no place uh, in the American, so-called American experience. Uh, so whether or not that gets uh, codified, uh, you know, that remains to be seen. Uh, but I think all of this, if, if, to me, represents the, the the range of the of the ideological struggle taking place in this country as a consequence of of everything being decentered to a certain extent, uh, and this desperate attempt on the part of of the most reactionary forces in in this country to try to stabilize uh, the situation ideologically by re-embracing a, a fantasy, a romantic notion of what this country um, is all about. And in doing that, having then to erase the ugly history and reality of this country. Um, and that, to me, is, is something that they're going to try, have been trying. But I think that with this current generation and the, the situation we find ourselves in today, I think that's going to be a very, very difficult uh, um, uh, path to try to follow. Kwaku. You know, it's funny that you mentioned that woke in the pejorative sense, because the first time that I heard the term woke and, and understood it used culturally was Erykah Badu in 2008 with uh, her album New America Part One. And in that in that sense, I agreed with it. I understood, OK, you're, 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 the, the objective is to stay awake in the face of everything in the society that seeks to put you to sleep. And so there's a rare few people that actually stay awake. And now... You have this situation in which um, probably about six years ago, somebody asked me if I was woke. And I said, hold on, what do you mean by that? And he started to go down the list of different memes on social media that if you believed in them, you bought into them, then that meant you were woke. You were with this crowd that, that knew the truth in spite of all the well-researched individuals like um, people on this call today and others who listen to the program, that you are one of the few who are actually woke. And I was like, no, I'm not woke. I'm not, I'm not that. I, I, I prefer actual research and things like that. And so to see it transform for, from 2008 to what it has been the past few years to now what the, the right has characterized it as is very interesting um, to see how, how that, has, that term has been used for political means by both the left and the right and everybody in between. And I think the, what's being lost is the sense of who we are as a people, the diversity of our people, and the the politics that each one of us may embrace accordingly. And those things, when they're swept under the rug for, for memes, whether on social media or on Capitol Hill, 
I think it, it's a detriment to all people, and we have to we have to wake up literally from from that dream and put these things aside so that we can actually move forward in a way that will benefit us. Ajamu, doesn't that happen, and we see this happen now a lot, when so-called liberals get into the movement and then co-opt the movement and the message? Black Lives Matter, for example. The same thing that happened to woke happened to Black Lives Matter. And once George Soros starts contributing to the movement, you're done. (laughs) Well, yeah, of course. I mean, some of the the, the driving forces for uh, so-called wokeness, uh, pushing an ideological agenda uh, that was uh, 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 propping up the state and the system, um, emanated from some of these uh, controlled oppositional elements, including Black Lives Matter. Um, and so the objective was to to normalize a, a uh, liberal framework uh, to uh, uh, to a certain extent, uh, and everything beyond that uh, notions of of what it meant to be a human being um, was considered to be outside of the pale, uh, and that uh, worthy of debate or. Um, if one engaged in certain kinds of debates and raised certain kinds of questions, then you face the, the possibility of being uh, literally uh, counseled from the culture. So, yeah, it's, it's an ideological uh, weapon uh, meant to uh, not only silence, but to shape consciousness in such a way uh, that it benefits, uh, objectively benefits the system. And Kwaku, same question to you in listening to Ajamu, I just started thinking about a part of Dr. King's Where Do We Go From Here, Chaos or Community, where he warned us about white liberals and their involvement in the movement, saying that they've always been willing to protest and protect African-Americans against the brutality of the lash, but they were never about equality. You know, and it's funny because I tend to veer on the side of a liberal understanding or understanding of liberalism from uh, Mao Zedong, which combat liberalism and, and that definition of liberalism is not something that um, anyone would read and aspire to, but that's an issue. We don't have a society of people who actually read and research and things like that. And so when you look at these characteristics of a liberal in this society and you look at the, the character of a liberal in that definition, from combat liberalism, you find that they operate very much the same. And so when you look at this and you see this, like, well, I don't want to be like that. I don't want to be a liberal. I do want to be progressive. I do want to be revolutionary, but I don't want to be a liberal. And, you know, that that then clears the air um, so that we don't have multiple terms that are being used interchangeably, but are actually historically mean different things. And I know there's another use of liberal um, from the European classical sense. But it's, and and even we have neoliberalism now, but we don't have enough time to go into all these nuances. But I think it's very important to understand the cultural contradictions that come about when we use these terms interchangeably in modern U.S. society without an understanding of where they come from, how they've been used, and how elites use them against us when we're trying to organize for the betterment of our people. 
Margaret Kimberly writes at Black Agenda Report, why would black people loud the FBI or criticize protection against self-incrimination? The FBI search of Donald Trump's home has reawakened Trump derangement syndrome. You know, Jamu, I had a Facebook friend who was basically making the argument, why would someone not talk to the police? Why would someone claim the Fifth Amendment rights if they're not guilty? And I said, I taught this at UMES, a black school to young black men, and I taught them. Don't answer any questions. Talk to your lawyer. Ask the police, am I being detained or am I free to go? This goes against everything that we believe in. And again, it's the liberals dragging people of color and other people to support the FBI, who I might add just raided the African Socialist Party a couple of weeks ago. Uh, your thoughts on all of this, Jamu Baraka? Well, yeah, I think it's, it's, it's really those kind of positions are really reflective of the, the, uh, the distance that um, African-Americans have traveled toward the right. But this, uh, this identification with uh, the uh, settler colonial state uh, the identification as, as 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 a member of this of this nation um, has, in some ways, disarmed some people and allowed them to have a, a faith in uh, in the settler colonial uh, institutions in ways that we would would have never seen 40 or 50 years ago. Uh, so it's a very dangerous phenomenon, but a very understandable one because part of the counter-revolutionary process in the 1970s was was geared. Uh, to creating uh, a the an African American, or maybe more so, more correctly, uh, an American African. Uh, so you know, these are the kinds of of, of 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 attitudes we have, the kind of of consciousness that we now have to deal with as we attempt to try to uh, form uh, resistance uh, to the uh, uh, growing dangerous uh, trajectory uh, toward the the, the right. Uh, the 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 neo-fascism that's becoming more and more uh, normalized, um, and a black black community that uh, doesn't have the kind of, of ideological weapons that we used to have. But you know, this is what the this, these are the objective conditions uh, and subjective conditions we find ourselves in, and we just have to uh, to to deal with them accordingly. Quaco and Margaret writes: Progressives love the FBI, leftists embrace the Espionage Act, something they're using against whistleblowers, Julian Assange, etc. And now they're again, they're dragging black people. They're dragging so-called progressives, so-called progressives and leftists to be simply supporters of the national security state. Kwaku Lumumba. You know, if you read African folktales, you know, especially those who have come through enslavement in the in the Americas, we tend to have a better understanding of the devil than any other person or people in the world. But yet, when you look at a situation like this, um, we seem to have forgotten who the devil is and what, how the devil behaves. Because in those stories, you see how we interact with the devil, because we have to in the same environment. But we're doing it as a means to make progress and then ultimately outsmart the devil. But we've forgotten that the FBI has always been a devil for our people. And from the very beginning, from its inception, it was used as a means to undermine our self-determination organizing with the Universal Negro Improvement Association as probably the, the most prominent in its, in its foundation, how it destroyed that organization. Um, going all the way, of course, we know about Dr. King. We know about 
Malcolm X. We know about all of our um, 60s and 70s and 80s and so on and so forth, um, revolutionaries and progressives and organizers who were assassinated or character assassinated at the very least to undermine our, our efforts toward progress. And so here we are in 2022 and the past few years involving um, mainly Donald Trump, where we are now cheering for the FBI to be our angel when it has always been a devil for us. And we can't afford to forget that because if we do forget it, then we'll really be caught off guard the next time the devil points his gun or its finger at us. And to that, before I move on to discussing China and the G20, I just want to make the point to those in the community who want to champion the FBI, just take a look at the case of Imam Jamil Alamin, formerly H. Rap Brown, and how once the FBI puts that target on your back, no matter where you go and no matter how much good you do in the community, they're not going to rest until they get you where they want you. And so I, I think that he's a perfect example of how they just don't stop. Let me go now to China backs African Union bid to join the G20. Beijing will support the African Union in its decades-long quest to join the G20. Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi said this yesterday as China vies with other powers for influence on the continent. This, to me, is a very clear example of action versus rhetoric. As uh, Secretary of State Blinken is traversing African countries, just espousing a whole bunch of rhetoric, here you have a country like China actually doing something tangible. Your thoughts, Ajamu Baraka. I think that uh, it, it's a very interesting uh, development that reflects the, the new political realities we have. Um, the shifting balance of international forces away from the U.S. Uh, toward the east, uh, the growing importance of, of, of Africa and um, the so-called uh, global south, um, and the uh, relative ineptitude of, of U.S. policy, and that uh, having the foresight uh, to uh, bring into its orbit uh, structures like the uh, African Union. Um, and the changed reality also as a consequence of this Ukrainian war uh, that has forced uh, nations to either uh, pretend to be neutral or to, to take a side. Uh, so, yes, this is going to be it's, it's an it's interesting phenomenon. Um, uh, it, uh, they have now outmaneuvered the U.S. to a certain extent. <clears throat> uh, what this would really mean in terms of, of politics on the African continent remains to be seen. But in terms of the propaganda war uh, is a very interesting development. Um, and we, we'll, we'll see what uh, what unfolds. Kwaku. Yes, I, I agree. And I was saying that it's always good for the African Union to have a seat at the table when we're talking about decisions of global magnitude. It doesn't make any sense for them not to be. Um, you have the largest continent on the planet. You have the a population of over nearly one uh, one and a half billion people and growing. You have the youngest population uh, per capita on the on the in the world it's it doesn't make any sense for them not to be at the table and we're talking about resources <laughs> most of the world's resources especially when we're talking about the industrial age the 21st century um, the technical age all of these things most of their resources are coming from Africa to be able to fuel these uh, industrial or the engine of capitalism at the very least and so 
when Africans aren't at the table to make these decisions, that means you have people exploiting Africans who will then do anything that they choose to with the Africans and with the people in their land. And, it's, you know, that's something that we can't allow. And so it's, I'm glad that, um, that, that China is vying for African Union participation in the G20, um, and everybody should. It, it doesn't make any sense otherwise. It's kind of funny uh, that uh, now that that offer has been sort of uh, 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 advanced, we know that the U.S. Uh, does not want the AU to be there because uh, they do see, I think, correctly that this is something that, will, that may benefit uh, uh, the Chinese uh, and even the Russians. But look at the predicament that they find themselves in right now. They can't really oppose it. <laughs> yes. And the other thing I think is, you know, from doing radio here and doing journalism here, I've seen like this major fury in the Ethiopian community. Washington, D.C. metro area has a huge Ethiopian community. So what we're seeing is people who are in the African diaspora who are outside of the African continent and many even in this. We saw also Ilhan Omar. She got booed for like 10 minutes from people from Somalia because of her actions with the U.S. empire. So we're also seeing a backlash in the United States. The African diaspora is starting to look at what the U.S. is doing and saying, you know, I'm not a part of this. I don't I don't like this. I'm not going to support this. Ajamu. Oh, um, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, I think people are getting getting an education on on whose interests are, are predominant. They're beginning to understand that this uh, U.S. EU NATO axis of domination represents a, a real threat, not only to themselves but to collective global um, humanity. Uh, and so the the politics are being sharpened. Uh, the world views are becoming more uh, clear. Um, and that, that to me, is something that's good uh, and needs to be encouraged uh, and can only, I think, eventually lead to, uh, to real progress for African people and, and, and all colonized people. Kwaku. Well, you know, it's interesting because the liberals have a problem in that they have cultivated this 60-year relationship with the historic diaspora, those they call African-Americans, to use us as a means of bolstering their position in office. But now they've got new voter blocks, new Africans in America that have their own voter blocks. You, you mentioned the Somalis, you have the Ethiopians, that they, when they vote for someone, they want that person to be responsive to them after they get in office, as opposed to a lot of the historic um, African diaspora that once, once we get somebody in there, we consider that the victory. And we celebrate that, as we did with Barack Obama. He never had to answer to us after that. But the Ethiopian bloc is not like that. When they, got their, when they got people in office and they didn't respond to them during the current crisis, they're now organizing to get those people out of office after their first term. And so it's something that the liberals haven't had to deal with for decades. And they're going to have a rude awakening, I think, over this next election cycle, especially leading into the presidency, when... They don't have the buy-in from the, the new migrants from Africa because they did not deliver on their promises from this last election cycle. Police lied to search Breonna Taylor's home. The March 2020 killing of Breonna Taylor, which caused widespread protests around the country, was the result of lies to obtain a warrant and racist police violence after officers forced their way into her apartment. 
On August 4th, the Department of Justice announced the federal grand jury indictments of four Louisville Metro police officers involved in the raid that resulted in her death. Your thoughts, uh, we have just about a minute and a half left, Ajamu Baraka. Very briefly, I think that this is a very interesting uh, um, case um, uh, indictment. Uh, we should be reminded that um, uh, the, the Barack Obama uh, Justice Department only felt it uh, proper to indict or attempt to indict one uh, individual cop. Uh, so it's nothing out of, that came out of this that's surprising. We knew that they lie, and they lie across the country to get these kinds of warrants to, to be able to rush in on people and to, in, in many cases, to to murder them. Quickly, your thoughts, Kwaku. We got about a minute. Well, I, I don't have anything different to say. I just think that, you know, I'm glad that it came out. And I hope that we continue to organize so that this kind of thing can't happen again to another innocent brother or sister in the community. Ajamu Baraka and Kwaku Lumumba. Gentlemen, thank you both so much for your time. Really, really appreciate that analysis. Enjoy your weekends, and we look forward to having you guys back. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing our voices into your space. On behalf of myself and my co-host, Garland Nixon, we hope you were informed and enlightened. And we look forward to talking with you all right here next week on Radio Sputnik. Be safe. Peace and blessings. We're out. 